2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That was not a theoretical statement to the church at Thessalonica. They were living out that very promise experientially, and they were persevering in the face of great opposition, great persecution. And today what I want to do is I want you to look at that with me this morning. I want you to look at their testimony in 1 Thessalonians 2:13 down to uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. This is just going to be a starting point. I do hope that you have uh, your Bibles open and your Bible apps pulled up because you're going to need them this morning as we go through many different texts and look at this great promise and truth that we see just in the testimony of the lives at the church at Thessalonica, the witnesses there. But we'll begin reading in verse 13. He says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, then, I could bear it no longer. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that someone or somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. The Apostle Paul in this passage is rejoicing, but notice who he's really rejoicing over. He's rejoicing about 
the fruit that he sings manifest in the saints at Thessalonica, but he's ultimately rejoicing over God who is producing this fruit in their lives. He's rejoicing over their testimony, the testimony that declared that they are being preserved by God and they are persevering by God's grace in the face of great persecution. And they're doing it. If you go back into chapter one, you'll see they're doing it with great joy. I just I want you to stop and notice this in verse nine. Look at who Paul credits and thanks for their joy and for the joyful perseverance of the saints there at Thessalonica. He attributes it and credits it to God. It's God who is the author of this. It's God who saved them and is securing them and is working through them in the face of great opposition. And that's what I want to explore this morning with you. I want to look at this from this passage and other passages of Scripture because sometimes I think when we talk about perseverance, we forget to talk about preservation. We persevere because we are preserved by God. And sometimes when we talk about persevering in the faith, we think we have to just sort of work this up ourselves. And I don't think I can do it. So I I think that I'm going to fail. And so I, I give up. But there's a supernatural element to our perseverance. And I want us to see that today. Our perseverance in the face of suffering and our perseverance in the sense of being able to do it with joy, embracing persecution, embracing suffering for Christ's sake, that is part of a supernatural act of God's grace. We would have no assurance apart from that grace. We would have no assurance apart from his promise to keep us. It would not produce joy in us when we face persecution apart from this promise of grace. We wouldn't be able to face it with joy except that he is working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. And we can rest in that. Sometimes we have a misconception because we talk about spiritual disciplines and we talk about the need for sanctification and that Christians should have joy all the time and they should persevere in the faith. Sometimes we think about that as if if it's something that we have to stir up on our own, that we have to gut it out. I got I got to persevere. I got to make this happen. I got to have joy. I got to be sanctified. That's a wrong understanding of the doctrine of preservation. Preservation is what causes you to persevere in the face of persecution. You do this persevering act out of the grace of God that flows to you through the work of Christ. And as a result of his work, you now have a desire because you have a reconciled heart. You have a heart that's at at peace with God, at one with God's will. You want to have joy in the gospel in your life. You want to have sanctification. You want to be set apart. You want to persevere in a faithful way that would honor your God who saved you. So I want us to make sure we understand when we talk about persevering, it's not just about this human ability to say, I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to do this. Because as Paul pointed out this morning, Mormons do that. Other cults do that. Why does the Christian look at the persecution that comes to them and embraces it with joy? Because we know that God has preserved us to bring him glory and he will carry us through it. That's what I want us to grasp this morning as we think about these things. And I think that the reason for our joy and perseverance in the midst of great suffering is not just outlined in a a sketchy way in 1 Thessalonians. I think it's in a more detailed way in Colossians. Go there with me. Go to Colossians chapter one. I think here we see the reason for our joy and perseverance in the midst of all kinds of difficulties 
and suffering, including persecution itself. But let me let me say this. Sometimes when we talk about persevering in the faith, we, we only kind of categorize it as something that you do as you're witnessing as a, as a gospel present, you know, presentation out on the street or doing something super spiritual. Listen, God's preserving power and his persevering grace that works in you carries you through the difficult days of your life. Not just when you're standing up and being bold for the gospel's sake, but he is always working in us to comfort us and to give us joy in the midst of the difficult things that come our way. And here's why. Here's the reason. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 11, Paul prays this. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Notice it's, it's God's might. It's God's power that's going to give you endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you or empowered you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is not gutting it out, perseverance. This is joy-filled, amazed at what God has done, joy-driven perseverance here he's talking about. He says, look, this should get you excited. This should make you want to endure. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's just trying to pile up these these superlatives about Jesus and God, the father working to save us. That will drive us then to persevere in the face of suffering. This is for for by him in verse 16. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, now that's just astounding truth. Then he says, let's, let's remember who you are and see if this doesn't drive you to persevere with joy. And you, verse 21 who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled, and he did it not in a generic way, not in a universal way, but in a personal way, in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's the reason. There's the purpose. In order to. Here's why we persevere. We persevere because God is at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure, conforming us to Christ's image, to present us one day before his throne as trophies of his grace through the work of his son, to be holy and blameless and above reproach. That that is the the result of God's grace working in us. That is not something you determine on your own to do in your own strength. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be blameless. I'm going to be above reproach. You want to do those things if you are regenerated, if you have been reconciled to God, if you have been ransomed by his blood, because he is going to conform you to his will and his word. That's a result of grace. It's not you gutting it out. 
So in that passage, in Thessalonians, you begin to see the reasons or the, the foundational causes of the perseverance of the saints. And here's what it is. The reason or cause of our perseverance is God's preservation. We are chosen by him, picked out, not simply to escape hell, but to be trophies of his grace in eternity, always reflecting the work of his son that took wretches and made us his own children, made us his own. And you can see the ultimate reason that he does that, I think, back in Isaiah, the Old Testament. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 43 to see this, beginning in verse 1. We see the the reason that Paul outlined in Colossians, but we see the why for our perseverance and God's preservation here in Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, that's the people of God. He's using those terms to talk about all the people of God. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. So it, he, he's saying, I'm going to be there. I'm going to preserve you. You got to pass. You got to persevere. But understand, I'm there. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Why will they persevere? Why will they continue on? Because they're preserved by God. And here's the reason why. The ones that I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is why. Here we see that that God in his grace has chosen a people to redeem and to preserve, to give him eternal praise. That is why we persevere to the end. It's because of his grace. He chose us. He'll keep us. He walks with us. That's why we persevere in times of difficulty with joy, because this life ain't the end. One day we're going to be presented before him to display the work that he has done in Christ to make us his own. Go with me now to uh, the gospel of John. In John 10 in particular here this morning, we're going to get a survey of scriptures So that's what I said. You need to have your Bibles ready and open. In John 10, we begin to see how how God preserves us to the end. We begin to see the how part of this. In John 10, verse 11, here's how God is going to preserve his people. Here's how we're going to be preserved and how we're going to be moved to persevere when we grasp the reality of what John gives us here. In verse 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, the sheep, the ones that would be mine for my glory. And then he says this, he who is hired, a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep 
sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is how we're going to be preserved. The good shepherd comes to retrieve his sheep. He owns them. They were his before the foundation of the world. He calls them. Look on over in chapter 10 in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they know me or they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one unit. They're one. He's he's telling us here that God, the father, God, the son working together to call his people. He has called them in a way that he promises them. I will never lose you. Christ came for you to retrieve you. I will secure you. I will choose you out from this world, call you out from those that are here among you for my glory. I will purchase you with his blood. I will call you and you will hear my voice when I call and you will follow me. Listen, if anyone here, and I hope all of you here, have followed the voice of Christ in a saving way, you did because your deaf and dumb and dead ears had been opened by His grace. You could not follow Him. You could not hear the Good Shepherd calling you unless He sovereignly intervened and gave you what you cannot earn on your own by His grace. He opened your ears. He gave you a new heart. He regenerated you and produced faith and repentance in you. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. All of God's unmerited favor. We contribute nothing to it. We are beggars holding up our empty hands. But they're not really empty, are they? They're full. They're full of wretchedness and sorrow and sickness and death and sin. And the Savior takes it all. And gives us in exchange his grace, his love and his forgiveness. And he does that for his own glory and praise. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. And we're glad for that. Because in his God-centeredness, he has chosen to save a people that will reflect his glory for eternity. Go back with me to Colossians 1. I want to read 19 and 22 again. Verse 19. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but you weren't inactive. You were pursuing sin joyfully and willingly. God didn't make you do it. The devil didn't make you do it. You did it because sin dwells in you. You are the epitome of sin before conversion. You are active in this hostility and this alienation and these evil deeds. But then he says, here's what happened. He has now reconciled you. You are at enmity with God. Now you're at peace with God. And he did it by taking your place in his body of flesh by his death. Again, though, there's a purpose for this. 
It is to make you holy. It is to make you blameless. It is to make you above reproach. In eternity, yes, glorification. Progressively, yes, in sanctification. But if you spend all your time in sanctification, looking at your own feet, your own walk and your own actions and not fixing your eyes on Christ, you're going to stumble and be frustrated and be discouraged because you you are not holy in and of yourself. Neither am I. Only Christ is. He's the source of our holiness. And if we fix our eyes on him and we pursue him, you'll find that the things of this world grow strangely dim as they pass you by. Because your eyes are on the true glorious prize, which is Christ and his praise. That's what drives you into sanctification. That's what drives you into difficult situations to be a faithful witness for Christ and face persecution. It's the love you have for Jesus who loved you and gave himself up for you. That's what drives the persevering desire of the heart. Because we know we are preserved through his work. Through his grace. And Colossians is basically telling us that all those that Jesus reconciles through his blood, through his death on the cross, all those people will be presented to God as an evidence or a testimony of his sufficiency, his supremacy, his accomplishment. They will be holy and blameless and above reproach to testify to his effectual saving Work. Jesus didn't come to make salvation possible. He came to accomplish it. And salvation includes glorification in the future. Christ will have a glorious bride. We're spotted now. But the one who promised to keep us will completely cleanse us by his grace. And he does that so that on the last day, when we are presented, as Colossians is talking about, as verse 22, he's, he's saying, look, you're going to be presented Before God, he's doing that so that on that last day, when we are presented to God, we will testify to the power of God's grace and we'll do it for eternity. Heaven is cross centered, Christ centered. We'll forever be there looking upon the Savior, the scars in his hands, the, the wound in his side and seeing that's why I'm here. That's why I am saved. That's why I am secure. And it's because of God's sovereign and immeasurable grace that was poured out on me through the work of his son. Because his life was imputed or credited to my account. Now, what I want you to understand this morning, if you've ever went through difficulties, if you've ever went through hardships and you've ever been persecuted, you ever had difficult days. And I think that would include now everybody, right? If you live long enough, you're going to suffer. And sometimes you don't have to live very long at all to suffer. But when you understand the God who created you and the God who sustains you, the God who saves you, this this hope in him, this assurance of his sovereign work will be the anchor of your soul when you are tossed to and fro by the storms of life. I need this anchor. Things don't go well at times in my life. But I have to believe there is a sovereign God who loved me enough to send his son To take my place. He is not going to forsake me or leave me in the midst of my suffering. He is going to sanctify that suffering to bring him praise on the last day. That's what perseverance is about. Because I know I'm preserved. I'm going to persevere out of the joy of knowing God who has promised will keep all that is committed to him against that day. Now, I want you to go on further with me. 
Stay in John. Go back to John, rather. Go back to John. I want you to see that our promised preservation is, is really what leads to our joyful sanctification and our perseverance in the face of these trials and difficulties that come into our life. Go to John 6. I'll begin reading in 35 in just a moment. I, I, I want you to know this. I want you to grasp this, feel this. Because I think the Bible is clear on this topic. I think that's why we're doing a survey, if you will, this morning of different passages. The Bible is clear on this. God preserves his people by his grace so that, the purpose clause, so that we will persevere for his glory. He saves us by his grace so that we will persevere for his glory. Let me read this passage to you. In verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing. Of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this didn't set well with the Jews, obviously, because what he's saying is just because you're a Jew, just because you're a child of Abraham physically, it doesn't mean you can hear me. It doesn't mean that you've been given by the father to me. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that come came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? They were casting impunity on Jesus's character, saying he was basically a, a fatherless child out of wedlock child. They, they completely misunderstood what he's saying. They're angry. Their anger is blinding them. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can dunamai, meaning no ability, no power, not possible, not even unable, no might. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. No one can. But if you do, it's because he was giving you to the son To be his child for eternity. That's why you can. It's only because of his gift to the son that enables you now to believe and to obey and to hear his voice when he calls you. That's how you come. He drew you through the work of his son. He drew you and he will raise you up on the last day as a result of that work. Now, if you if you really believe that God will preserve his people. And he's going to do it for his glory. And you say amen to that statement. It's because of this. It's because of God's sovereign grace that you do that. Now, if you believe this and you say amen to the fact that you will persevere for God's glory because you are preserved by his grace. And you know that intellectually. I got to ask and I have to ask myself, even though I know that, is it changing me practically? Like, is my life reflecting the gratefulness of my heart for what God has done to save me by his grace. 
am I just complacent? Am I just sitting back saying, well, yeah, you know, I know that God has elected a people from before the foundation of the earth. And that's an amazing truth. But is that truth changing my view of my own activity, my own life, my own interaction with others? Am I rejoicing in it? Am I thinking over this and going, God, what an amazing God you are. You would choose me and I would sit and waste my life in trivial things. When you have destined me for glory, you have determined for me to be to the praise of your glorious grace in eternity. And yet I'm wasting all these hours and moments every day on selfish pursuits. Sanctification and joy and perseverance comes from not, like I said, gutting it out. But reflecting deeply on what God has done to save you. It should change you when you recognize that God says here in John 6 that he will not lose any of those whom he has chosen to give to the son. That the son purchased with his own blood. That the son and the spirit and the father effectually called. That'll change the way we live if we think about this. Just think about it. God, the father, sovereignly determined, supremely determined, omnipotently determined to save you and then secure you in spite of you. Not because of you, but in spite of you. You are not lovely. You are not noble. You are not of good repute. You are wretched and vile. But when you think about this, that he determined to save and secure you and that each person that he sent the son to die for will be raised up to eternal life. Does that change the way you live your Christian existence? Does that change the way you consider sin? It's been atoned for. I'm forgiven. I heard one lady tell me, I know that sin. I'm going to do it. God will forgive me later. You don't understand sin and you don't understand God if you can say that. A holy God who says the price for your sin is the blood of my son. You don't get that if you can treat sin trivially. But when you understand this, that will drive you to perseverance. It will drive you to sanctification. That's what I think the scriptures consistently teach us. In this John passage, John 6, he's saying this. If, if one of, of those for whom Christ died for, if, if one of those persons, if they fail to persevere in the faith to the very end, then the triune omnipotent God has been defeated by sin's power. And let me just make sure we're clear on that. That's impossible. It ain't going to happen. Why? Because Christ Jesus lived our life, died our death, and rose to declare that he had conquered sin for us. And his power now works in us by God's grace. And John's telling us that, look, I want you to get this and let it move you to obedience. Every single soul, all, Every single soul for whom Christ died, he says, will be regenerated. All those for whom Christ died will be saved. They will be transformed by the Holy Spirit's power and they will be raised up from the grave on the last day, given eternal life in Christ. That is an assuring hope that should drive us to persevering grace and go, thank you, Lord. That's why I can continue on in the face of opposition. You didn't just save me from hell. You saved me for yourself. 
And I want to rejoice in that. And here's another comforting thought that comes from this doctrine of perseverance and preservation. When you know who it is that saved you and that preserves you and you have a lost child and you're concerned about them. Your hope is in Christ and his promises and his grace that can save a wretch like you. That will give you assurance and that will give you perseverance in times of difficulty. And that will drive you to evangelism. See, it's, sometimes we get it the other way around. We try to do evangelism and then cultivate joy. The joy of knowing who we are in Christ is what drives us to proclaim the gospel to the lost. That should be what moves us. That's what I really want you to understand this morning. I was thinking about this all week. I, think I, could, I could preach Colossians, or 1 Thessalonians 2. And I could tell you guys about how wonderful it is that these saints persevered. And we could talk about perseverance. And I could almost even make you feel guilty that you're not persevering with joy. And that's not the goal of the scriptures. The goal is to look at why they persevered with joy. It's God. That's why. Rejoice in God and you will persevere. Because he preserves you to the very end. That verse 39 there in John 6 is really astounding to me. All that he has given me will be raised up on the last day. Every single soul given to Jesus by God the Father will be resurrected to eternal life. Did that, does that astound you? I have assurance, not based on my works, not based on my ability, not based on my religious activity, but in Christ and his perfection and his obedience and his sacrifice. All that are given to the Father from the Father to the Son, will be raised up. And everyone, I want you to understand this in John 6, everyone who does believe, everyone who hears Christ's voice, the Good Shepherd's voice, everyone who believes here in this passage, John 6, are those who are given to Christ by the Father. That means they will be saved and they will be secured forever. That should give you confidence when you do evangelism. We know that the, the gospel work is an effectual work. And we are to go out and proclaim it individually and corporately and personally, knowing that God will save his people from their sins. That should be your assurance when you're facing opposition in your evangelism. I know that God is the one who does the saving. God is the one who does the securing. I've got to be faithful with the message and rejoice in it. That's why I do evangelism. That's why I share the gospel. I want you to notice when you think about John 6 there, he says nothing about man's ability, nothing about man doing anything in this. It's not you that saved yourself. It's not you that secure yourself. It's not you that sanctify yourself. Yes, we work with the spirit in sanctification, but it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Look at verse 39 again, and you, you recognize or the whole passage that it's not by your power that you persevere. It's not by your power that you have earned preservation from God. It's because of God's sovereign, omnipotent, self-exalting grace. That's why you persevere in the faith. Look further in chapter 6, down to verse 63. He makes it really clear that you and I understand you didn't earn this. You didn't deserve this. You can't even keep this. It's God who's doing this. 663. It is the Spirit who gives life. Hmm. The flesh is no help at all. Now, that kind of counters most teaching. 
outside of Christianity, all teaching outside of Christianity. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. So he's saying, look, you can't even come to God. You don't have the ability. You don't have the inherent power to do this on your own. The only reason you come for salvation, because God drew you by his grace. The only reason you can come to him and continue coming to him in perseverance is because he holds you by his grace. But go on over in John's gospel to chapter one. Make sure we're clear that we don't do any of this in our own strength, but we rejoice in God's strength. John 1, verse 12, speaking of our salvation. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave. He gave. Didn't say they asked, didn't say that they begged, didn't say they worked for it. He gave the right to become children of God who were born. Let's see, was it by our own strength, by our own ability, by our own lineage? Religious activity? No. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Wow, not even that great autonomous free will, which doesn't exist. But of God. We are born again of God. Born from above. He regenerates us by His grace, for His glory, and He keeps us for eternity to declare, this is how powerful I am. I can take a group of people who have shaken their fist at me. I can open their clenched fist and make them receive the gift. And they will then willfully, joyfully pursue me and testify to me to all the nations. Because he is God. I don't know why people get so offended when we talk about the sickness of man's depravity and the inability of man in and of himself. When you recognize we're talking about a sovereign God who created the universe by the word of his power. And we think that we can try to somehow usurp some sort of authority and say, well, he could save me except for my free choice. Brothers and sisters, he saved you in spite of your free choice. Your free choice was that you would pursue sin and Satan and the course of this world for the rest of your life and for eternity in hell. But he opened your eyes to see the immensity of his grace in Christ. And you came willingly because he drew you by his grace. One more passage. Most famous in John chapter 3. It says the same thing. 3.16. I want you to pay attention to the last verse I read and understand what he's saying. Because he's saying, look, the things that you were saved to do, you're not doing by yourself. It's in God. They're done in God. Because God is the one who initiated your salvation. By the way, I came to the doctrines of grace because of John 3.16. Just because of the first four words, for God so loved. Who did the loving? It was God. What was I doing? You read James. I was at enmity. I was at war with God. I mean, I war in my, my body because I have sin in me. But it says, for God so loved the world in a, in a way that was just astounding to the Jews of their day to hear something like this. Because it meant not just the nation Israel, but even Gentiles. For God so loved the world that he gave. Again, God loved, then God gave. I'm still not in that passage doing anything. He gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, everyone believing is what it's meaning here. Everyone believing in him will not perish. They will have eternal life because God gave the son out of his love for you. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Not because God made them love darkness. No, their works were evil. That's why they did this. God does not force sin upon us. That is who we are by nature. He, by grace, stops some of us from going to the pit of hell and saves us from this. Changes us. But then notice this, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Who gets all the glory here? Who gets all the praise? It's God who loved. It's God who gave. It's the one who's now pursuing God as a result of his work in us. That is pursuing it by his grace because he has determined to magnify himself through our redemption. And magnify the immensity of his goodness and mercy to us. These works are carried out in God. Not in our own strength. And I think that these verses, church, I think these verses underscore the great overarching theme of the entire Bible, which is this. God calls sinners and preserves sinners by his grace in Christ so that we can live for his glory. That's why he does it. That's why you exist. That's why you're even still here on the planet and not in heaven now. You're here to bring glory to the one who redeemed you, who called you, who preserves you. That's what should drive your obedience now. You are preserved by God. This should drive obedient hearts. You have the heart of Christ beating in your chest. The spirit at work in you. This should drive your obedience. This should drive your service. This should drive your worship. This should drive your daily life. And I think that that's what the Apostle Paul quite understood when he wrote the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is full of commands. There are lots of commands. Those, those imperatives, though, they come after the indicatives. The indicatives are the truth of God's saving grace in Christ before the foundation of the world. Then he says, do these things. But let's look over there and check this out real quick. In Ephesians. In Ephesians, we can see that the, the truth of God's preserving grace is, is given to us to encourage us to persevere in good works. Right? We're saved by grace. And verse 10 of chapter 2 says it's for good works, to produce good works. But he gives us the truth of God's preserving grace here at the very beginning of the book to encourage us, to drive us, to fuel our sanctification, our perseverance and follow what God says that ought to be our reflecting works of his work in us and honor Christ. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, here in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, Paul blesses God okay, for his saving and preserving grace. Look, at, look what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption or for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed, he says, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. So he's telling us here, this is why you have been saved. This is how you have been saved. You're saved and you're going to persevere because of God's grace. That's what keeps you. That's what brings you to salvation. And he says in these passages, basically, he's, he's saying, look, this is this is why I now do what I'm fixing to do in the rest of the book. This is why, because of these truths, this is why I'm going to tell you what you ought to pray for, what I'm praying for. This is why I'm going to tell you the, the commands that you need to follow, that you need to persevere in. It's because of the grace that we see revealed in chapter 1. Look on down at verse 15 there of chapter 1. Notice this phrase. It's very important. As it follows... What he has done here in blessing God for saving us. He says, look, this is why I can pray this way. Because of what God has done for this reason. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having your eyes having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. For this reason, because of God's sovereign saving work, for this reason, I pray that you will grow in your spiritual wisdom and understanding of who Christ is. That's why I pray and I pray with confidence. I pray for you as a believer with confidence, because if you have been chosen before the foundation of the world for salvation, it is God's will that you would grow in wisdom and understanding. And so I pray out of the abundance of the promise and the truth of God's saving grace. Chapter three of Ephesians, verse 14, it says another one of these if you will, imperatives or indicatives and imperatives together, he's going to say, for this reason, I'm going to pray for your spiritual strength. In verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. For this reason, chapter 1, because of God's saving grace, I'm praying for you to persevere in your spiritual strength. I'm praying because I know that if he has saved you, he is going to sanctify you. And I can pray with confidence knowing that he's not going to just leave you as you are when he found you. He's going to conform you progressively to the image of his son. And so I'm going to pray for your spiritual strength. Chapter 5, he gives a command that flows out of the great and glorious truth of God's saving grace. A command to persevere, a command to be obedient, a command to continue on in the faith. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even must not even right be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. There's another command for at one time you were darkness, but now. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them in light of what God has done for you. Be imitators, be joyful imitators of what he has accomplished in Christ this is not a checklist of, OK, I haven't had this great conversation today, so I've been I've been bad. So I got to check that off. I got to figure out a way to balance that out. No, he's saying in light of God and his grace and Christ atoning work, live, live in the joy, live in the reality. And you will not put on the deeds of darkness. See, see these these commands that come in the, in the New Testament to us. They all come out of the revelation before that of God's saving grace. And we respond to the grace with a desire to persevere in holiness. Don't get it mixed up. You can become a legalist. When you understand the grace of God and you begin to grasp it and begin to soak into it, it's going to transform the way you live your Christian life. You don't need a checklist. You don't need a list of saying, I can't do this, I can't do that, I, can't, I can do this. No, you need Christ. A right understanding of Christ, the gospel, and God's grace, that will lead to joy-driven sanctification. And that's what I want us to grasp. That's why the Thessalonians could persevere in the face of persecution. You think it was easy? I mean, their lives were at stake. They would lose their families, their children, their homes. But they persevered with joy to the degree that they ended up encouraging the Apostle Paul, who was in another city, being persecuted. Because he saw the work of God's preserving grace working through them in their perseverance. And I hope, I hope we see that. I hope you see that all the, the prayers and the commands that we see flowing out of these kind of scriptures, that they, they tell us 
they come out of the doctrine of God's promise to preserve us. To preserve us for his glory. And that, that, that's a glorious purpose to understand. He chose to glorify his son through the transformation of those that he sent him to die for. To reveal the greatness of his grace that comes through the completed work of his son, Jesus Christ. You are the instruments and trophies of that grace. He uses you to magnify it as an instrument. He reflects his grace in your lives as you are conformed out of the joy that is overabundant in your heart over the truth of your redemption. Church, we can never get past the gospel. That is what drives sanctification. That is what drives evangelism. That is what drives perseverance and difficulties. It is our sure and unshakable foundation that God has loved me and sent his son to die for me. That should just... Well, to the praise of his glorious grace for eternity, cause us to sing and give thanks. And if it's going to do that in heaven, it should do it here on earth. And I hope that this will help you do that, because I want you to understand something that we persevere in the faith because of God's gracious purposes and his preservation. It's his work, not because we're getting it out, not because we're working hard at it ourselves. We persevere because of Jesus ultimately in this. We persevere because in Christ's sacrifice, our sin debt was not simply nullified, as Paul pointed out this morning in the equipping hour. Our sin debt was not simply nullified, not at all. Saints, understand something. When, when Christ died for us, we, we persevere because of this. We persevere because we were judicially, legally before God, the righteous God, legally declared to be righteous in his son through his sacrifice in our place. So listen, we're not merely to exist as if we're just kept from hell. That's not going to drive perseverance and joy and sanctification. That's not why we were saved. Not just to be kept from hell. It was much more than that. It was God's glorious praise. That's why you've been saved. You were saved and not just kept from hell, but you were granted heaven. All the rights of heaven that Jesus has. That is yours in him. You are declared righteous by the sovereign king of the universe because of Christ's atoning work. You are now not just at peace with God. You are loved by God, the one whom you have fought against your entire life. This should cultivate joy driven perseverance and sanctification. One last passage I want to look at, and it's lengthy, but I think it's important. Romans 8, verse 1. I think here in Romans 1, Romans 8, sorry, Romans 8, 1, we should be, as we, as we read this, we should be driven to joy, driven to thanksgiving because of the revelation of God's grace here, just even in the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, wait, let's just stop there. I don't have to wait for the future to find out that I'm going to be Without condemnation, I'm promised that in Christ. I know I have nothing to fear before God as far as judgment goes. I'm at peace with God because of Christ. Because he received the wrath that I deserved in my place. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. 
How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Notice, indeed, it cannot. It does not and it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Aren't you glad that God took on flesh to do this for us? He did this in our place. He did this in our weakness. He came at just the right time. Go on over to the last part of Romans 8. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the spirit knows, what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And all those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow. Think about this. All things work together. The spirit is interceding for us. Because we are preserved by God's grace because of Christ's atoning work. We're kept by his grace. We're preserved through his grace. And the spirit is interceding for us. And he's causing all things to work together for good. Okay, that doesn't mean that when you stub your toe, that God's going to work that out in some way that you're going to get a new car out of it. Okay. Oh, God's going to work this out for my good. A car. No. In context. He uses every bit of persecution, suffering and hardship and good and joy and lovely things in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. He uses all those things to work together for your good. And your ultimate good is to reflect Christ, to magnify Christ for eternity. Saints, I want you to understand we we have assurance that one day that's going to happen in perfection. Because that list in verse 30, that golden chain, that chain is unbreakable. For those who were predestined will be glorified. They will bring glory and praise to God on the last day. We have that assurance from God himself. And here's part of that assurance. Here's what I'm very thankful for this morning. Even in my weakness and my failures, his grace will be made strong for Christ's sake and for God's praise. That's a comfort to my heart. Church, that is the glorious power of God's preservation and Christ's reconciliation. And that's that's the reason that we can now persevere with joy in the face of difficulty and persecution and even daily suffering. This is why. It's because he is preserving us because Christ reconciled us to be reflections of his work. So I pray that that will encourage your souls this morning and I pray it will comfort you on a practical and daily basis. Because you will face persecution if you live a godly life. You will face suffering in a broken world. And I pray that this will help you in those struggles when that happens. 
I want you to remember this, that he who called you by his grace has also promised to keep you in his joy, not just in eternity, but now, presently.